0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org slash sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. There's a saying that was popular a few decades ago among A number of Christians. Perhaps it still is. You've probably heard it. You may have said it. It goes like this. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. A few of you remember this one from evangelical subculture a couple of decades ago. You could get a keychain. There were occasionally bumper stickers. Every now and then you'll see one on the interstate. The saying, the phrase, is helpful in some ways and unhelpful in others. It's helpful in what it's getting at. It's trying to distance Christianity from a sort of legalistic, holier-than-thou form of religion, isn't it? Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. We make mistakes. We don't get it all right. We're not like those Christians who kind of look down their nose at you and scoff at you and talk about you behind your back and your sins and they're perfect and they're holy and you're a mess. We're not like that. If you have that bumper sticker, that's the message you're trying to send, right? We're not holier-than-thou Christians. That's commendable. The problem arises, though, In the sorts of implications that sentence, that conditional sentence, that sentence makes, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, that contrasting sentence. The implications suggest that God is only, or at least primarily concerned with forgiving sins. We have to raise the question is that really the main thing God cares about? As He's revealed. His purposes in the New Testament. Is he not focused on more than forgiveness? Does he not desire to do work beyond conversion? And the saying also suggests or implies that human life, human beings made in the image of God, are inherently, essentially, And irreversibly sinful. And we might think, well, aren't we? (laughs) The problem with that arises when we look at Jesus, who is not only fully divine, but also fully human. And you could never say of Jesus, he's not perfect, just forgiven can we? So whatever is true about Jesus and his humanity, and later John is going to say, when he appears, we shall be like him. If Jesus is the ideal human being, if Jesus sets the standard, this is what it means to be human, made in the image of God, then sin is a falling short of full human life, isn't it? if Jesus defines what it means to be a human being living into God's purposes, and He does, then to assume God doesn't desire to do more than forgive us, to assume He doesn't desire to free us from captivity to sin and to cleanse us, as the text says, from all, all, all unrighteousness, then we've not yet come to really embrace and understand Or even begin to experience what he really desires to do in his people. We're going to see for John that this further work, this deeper work, this more work, more than forgiveness, is the main thing God is interested in doing. Yes, he has to forgive sins, but because you can't cleanse people who are... Estranged from you. Yes, he has to reconcile us to himself because he can't make, he can't transform people who are distant and unrelated to him. Yes, forgiveness is essential, but it's not the whole story. And that's not to say that John doesn't have a robust view of sin. He insists all the way through, like sin is a universal problem, isn't it? If anyone says they don't have any sin issues, they're liars, and the truth is not in them. So how do we deal? So he's got these two sentences that almost feel contradictory, and it's one right after the other at the beginning of chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. When was the last time someone said that to you? And then immediately after that, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And immediately before that, if anyone says they don't have any sin, they're liars. So if I say I don't have sin, I'm a liar, but you're writing these things so I stop sinning. How do we square that? How do those two sentences relate? How can he speak them in the same breath? What we're going to discover for John and for us, the thing that he wants to communicate, the thing that we have to embrace, is that the fact that we have sinned is not an excuse to sin. Bottom line. The fact that we have sinned is not an excuse to sin to sin. How do we get there? John begins with a testimony, doesn't he? He's getting to this point where he wants to deal with the reality of continuing sin, but before he gets to that, he's got to talk about Jesus. Everything begins and ends and is permeated with the testimony of the writer John to Jesus. We're not altogether sure which John this is. There were a couple associated with Jesus. We're going to notice as we read through that there's a lot of stuff that sounds a lot like the Gospel of John in 1 John. There are also things that sound a lot like Revelation, which was also written by a guy named John. And so historically, we've associated the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation as being associated with the same apostle. One thing that is clear is that he is insistent that his witness, his testimony, his writings are the consequence of a deep, personal eyewitness engagement with Jesus of Nazareth. This guy says, I was with him, I saw him, I heard him, I put my hands on him. We declare to you what was from the beginning. That sounds a lot like 1 John, doesn't it? Or John. 1 John sounds like the Gospel of John. In the beginning. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, and our hands have grasped. Can you imagine being able to say that about Jesus? The things that we have heard and seen and touched concerning the Word of life. This life was revealed. We have seen it. We testify to it. And declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. He's talking about Jesus, isn't he? Jesus is life. We declare to you what we have seen and heard, and here's the reason. John gives us lots of reasons. If you pay attention to the so that, every time those little words show up, two little words. Here's the reason I'm writing. So that. Here's the reason I'm telling you what I've seen and heard. So that, here's the purpose. So that you may, number one, have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God, the Father, and His Son. So number one, John wants fellowship. We're going to find out later on, there are some folks who have broken fellowship. Get there in a couple of weeks. For now, he is reassuring his recipients. I am writing pastorally to you to cultivate the gathered fellowship of the people of God. There's a horizontal dimension to that. right? John's not just a, hey, me and Jesus got our own thing going. I don't need the church because I got Jesus. Instead, I'm writing to you so that we can have fellowship together. Fellowship for encouragement. Fellowship for strengthening. Fellowship for correction. He's got some instructions for them. Fellowship to keep each other strong. And that fellowship that we have, we can call it horizontally, also has a vertical dimension. We are related to God. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then he says another So that phrase, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Here's what I want to emphasize at this moment. We're going to talk about sin in just a minute. We're going to do it because John's doing it and the text determines our sermon, right? Before John starts talking about sin issues, he is insistent that he is writing for the ultimate result of shared joy. He is writing so that the church, 1st century, 21st century, might participate in a fellowship with one another and with God in Christ that is primarily marked ultimately by joy. That's crucial because a lot of times when we start preaching about sin, things do not feel very joyful, do they? They get kind of depressing. They maybe get kind of legalistic. Maybe we slide into that holier than thou kind of feeling that we talked about a few minutes ago. John, that's not his direction. This is about your joy. Do you want joy? And we've got some things to talk about. Verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him. The message we proclaim to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And this is his transition. He's been talking about God. You start with God. Everything starts with God. The Bible is about God. Christianity is about God. The world is about God. We start with God. We start with us and our predicament, or whatever we like our preferences. We're going to miss some things. John says, starting point Jesus reveals God. In him is light. Or he is light. He is life. All of these things. And when we see his light, and when we see that in him there is no darkness, that ultimate, infinite, perfectly glorious, joyful light illumines our situation. So God is light. God is infinite in glory. He is life. And that's our proclamation. Life in Christ. Life is Christ. And that sheds light on us. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we're walking in the darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. So He moves from truth about God to truth about human beings. And this is the first of several conditional statements, if this, then that. And they just kind of keep coming. And the statement is, like, this is about fellowship. I've already told you. I'm writing so that you can have fellowship with us and with God. This is about fellowship. However, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, and our lives are marked by darkness and He is light, then there's a fundamental contradiction there. A fundamental falseness about what's really true in us. For John, darkness, continued indulgence in sin is mutually exclusive with fellowship with God in Christ. So if we say that we have fellowship with him while we're walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. And we think, John, I thought this was about joy. That's heavy, not very encouraging. Because I struggle with things and I'm not like, how do we deal with the issues, the shortcomings, the sin, the darkness? Verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So you've got this, on the one hand, on the other hand, you've got this contrast. You've got this reality uh, that sin characterizes human life from the start. We come into the world broken rebels. That's controversial for some reason. I don't really. I think I do understand why, but it seems self-evident to me. I mean, take a look around. <laughs> like, if you don't believe sin is a universal problem, watch the news. If you don't believe sin is a universal problem, watch some children. They're sweet sometimes, but they—you don't have to teach them like to lie and cheat. <laughs> We don't come into the world with a natural love of God. None of us come into the world with a natural love of God. John Wesley said, We come into the world, we'd rather, when we come into the world, we naturally would love a rock more than God. So we come into this world with this universal shared reality. That's why John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Like everybody's got a past. Anybody got a past? Everybody's got a past. We have said things that hurt people. We have caused offense. We have insisted on our own way. All of us, at some point or another, have sinned. It's irrefutable, and I think it's empirically demonstrable. The reason it's controversial is because we don't like admitting it. We'd rather pretend things are better than they are. But when faced with the testimony of Scripture, it is crucial that we confess the truth we find here. If We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are false. That's one reason, historically, uh, Jesus commands it, and the church has historically practiced it. We confess our sins. That is a practice of agreeing with God that he's telling the truth. and He's right about us. Jesus comes to meet that problem. It's a problem because it breaks fellowship, doesn't it? John has testified to the fellowship that we have with one another and with God, and the reality of sin disrupts that fellowship. The reality of sin Disrupts fellowship with other believers, and it disrupts fellowship with God. And so Jesus, John tells us, has come to cleanse us from that thing in our lives that disrupts our fellowship with God. And He's not come to deal with part of it. He's not come to deal with most of it. John says multiple times, He's come to deal with all of it. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from half our sin. No. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from most of our sin. No. The blood of Jesus, Scripture says, cleanses us from all our sin. And that means even if there are parts of my life that are characterized by sin, it need not be so. If There are parts of our lives that are characterized by darkness, it need not be so. Jesus came to heal that, to cleanse it few minutes later or in the next verse he's going to say if we confess our sins he's faithful remember this is about his character it's about the perfection of his character and the folly of ours it's about the beauty of his character and the brokenness of ours if we confess our sins if we simply agree with him about our depraved needful state he is faithful He is just, righteous, and He will cleanse us. Once again, not from some of our unrighteousness, not from most of our unrighteousness, but from all. Take a minute and think about your unrighteousness. (laughs) Again, you're like, I thought this was supposed to be about joy. My unrighteousness, not very joyful. Take a minute and think about all your unrighteousness. Now think about the unrighteousness of the people sitting around you. (laughs) There's a lot of unrighteousness floating around, isn't there? Jesus came to set you free from that. Jesus came to heal that. Jesus came to restore it. And that means... That a broken past is no excuse for a rebellious future. The fact that we have sinned and we have is no excuse to sin later. And maybe you're like the original readers and you're kind of thinking, I think I hear what he's saying. He sound, it sounds like he's saying Christians aren't supposed to sin. <laughs> but we all know Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, right? Because the keychain says so. Well, the question is, brothers and sisters, are we going to believe the bumper stickers or the Bible? Will we get our theology? Will we get our theology of salvation? Will we understand the work of Christ and his purposes from us? from pop culture or Scripture. And here's the way John pulls it together. He's like, you probably anticipated this, but let me just say it clearly and explicitly. I'm writing this so that you may not sin. I don't know how that makes you feel, but I struggle with that. I believe it, but... (laughs) I mean, wow! How do we take that on board? I mean, just let it sink in for a minute. The Bible says, John, the apostle, who was with Jesus, who saw Him, walked with Him, spoke to Him, heard from Him, traveled with Him, abandoned Him, possibly, unless he's the John who stuck around at the end. says, I'm writing these things to you, church, so that you stop sinning. Doesn't mean you don't have a sin problem. Doesn't mean you're perfect in every possible way. It doesn't mean you are a paradigm of glory and holiness. It doesn't mean you don't need to confess your sin. Doesn't mean there are not problems to be dealt with. It doesn't mean you, need to, you don't need to grow some more, does it? Clearly, he thinks they need to grow some more. What is he saying? He is saying that the world, everyone, is subject to fallenness. That sin is original and it is universal. Nobody can say, I don't have sin. However, if sin is universal and if sin is original, Jesus has come to deal with the full scope of that. As far and as broad and as wide as our sin is, that's how broad and wide and beautiful the work of Jesus is. So yeah, imagine your unrighteousness and then imagine your Savior. I'm reminded of the quote attributed to John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. Maybe you've heard it. I'm a great sinner. He is a great Savior. And this is one reason it's crucial for the church to follow the pattern of Scripture and have real conversations about the reality and the universal scope of sin. Because the better we understand how desperate our situation is, how deep our need is, and how broken we are, not just broken, but rebellious, the better we see that and the clearer we see that, the bigger Jesus is and the more beautiful He is and the more gracious He is and the more joy He can bring. Because however big our sin is, His power, His transforming grace exceeds that. He doesn't just come close to dealing with our sin junk. He desires to deal with all of it. So for John, the fact that we have sinned is not an excuse to sin. We don't get to mess up and go, oh well, I'm only human. Oh, i sinned, but hey, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. John's answer is, If you sin, confess it, and allow the light of God's perfect love to flood that place in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, in your be to flood you in its entirety, so that that does not characterize your life anymore. Not saying it's a switch, you flip, and it's like, boom, you're perfect, great, good. What we are saying is that Jesus relationally works in us over time so that as we become aware of issues that we can confess, He then heals them. And maybe you've had this sort of experience, you know, when you were A child, when we were children, there were dark places in our heart we didn't know about, right? And as we grew and maybe became adolescents, some of those dark places became apparent. Maybe we indulged them. Maybe we repented from them. Either way, as we grew and became young adults, more of those places that weren't surrendered to Jesus became apparent. And when they do, we can either obey Scripture and confess and experience His perfect love that cleanses us from that unrighteousness, or we can dig our heels in I had this conversation with one of my children a few weeks ago. We were sitting at the table, and someone hurt someone's feelings. And the offender blamed. We've all done that, haven't we? It's not my fault I hurt your feelings. It's your fault. You shouldn't be so sensitive. The story could be about any of us, couldn't it? (laughs) And the conversation we had was, hey, listen, hang on. Take it down a notch. I get it. You didn't mean to do it. I get that. Regardless of whether you intended to cause offense or hurt, you did. So now in this moment, there's one way, one of two ways to proceed, and this is true for all of us. I didn't intend to sin. I didn't intend to hurt my brother or sister, familial or in Christ. But now that, but I have, and now that I know that, I'm responsible for confessing it, aren't I? I can do the other. I can dig my heels in and say, no, that's not my fault. It's your fault. Or I can say, you know what? If I'd known that would be hurtful, I wouldn't have said it. I'm so sorry. I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. Which one of those does holiness look like? Right, so this is why, whatever it is, the holiness that John's talking about, the transformation that he's talking about, the dealing with sin, this is not a, I'm not a sinner, I get everything right, I obey all the commandments, I'm good, God sure is lucky to have me on his team. No, the thing that John is talking about, the vision of human life that he is describing, this stop sinning commandment that he gives us, is not about Hey, look at me, I got it all right. It's now that I recognize my darkness and my offense, am I, by God's grace, humble enough to confess that and repent? Knowing that repentance means turning from it. See the difference there? This is why, friends, some of the holiest men and women I know are the ones who are most deeply in tune with their sin and their fallenness. The holiest people are the quickest to repent. We think about, you got sin over here and you got holiness over here. And sin is just a part of life. And we have no idea what he's talking about when he says, I'm writing this or this, so that you may not sin. Because we all know, we're all a bunch of sinners. And holiness is impossible. That's what we are taught. Outside of Scripture. Not in Scripture. Holiness is commanded on almost every page of the Bible. We are inculturated into this. Not perfect. That's impossible. And the consequence is that we begin to sort of think, well, people who do think that they're holy have are liars or legalists or are self-deceived or, don't, or something. What I want you to see is that the vision of Christian maturity, Christian growth, Christian holiness that John paints is one where holiness isn't, look at me and how good I am. Holiness is, I've sinned and I confess and I repent. Jesus, you can have my heart in this moment. Isn't that where we want to be? and not just Jesus you can have my heart in this moment or this part of my heart Jesus you can have the 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 full all of it everything in my heart is yes no matter how much it hurts and no matter how much you have to scrub <laughs> like if you the language of cleansing is interesting isn't it You've ever had to like really scrub at a stain in some clothes and really kind of put something into it. And sometimes you scrub so hard, the fibers start to wear out, don't they? Anybody have any, none of you have ever washed clothes? You're like staring. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've had it, right? There's grass stains or there's baseball dirt. And you're like, just get it. And eventually you just give up and forget. But sometimes cleansing is hard. Sometimes It hurts. And Jesus wants to cleanse us. And that may mean that some of those fibers of my heart, (laughs) the ones that aren't supposed to be there, the ones that are stained, get rubbed off. But oh the joy of fellowship. An unencumbered, unhindered participation in the perfect love of the Trinity. And that, brothers and sisters, is Bible language. By this we may be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. Whoever says, I have come to know him. This is chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I've come to know him, but does not obey his commandments is a liar. Okay, So there's no, hey, I love Jesus on Sunday, but Monday, fair game. None of that. Come to know him but does not obey His commandments is a liar, and in such person the truth does not exist. Verse 5. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. Listen to this. Whoever obeys His word, who is offered to Him, who when Jesus calls, they say yes. Whatever you want, Jesus. Whatever you say. Whatever you call. Whatever you ask. Yes. That's all that means. Whoever obeys His word, Truly, in this person, the love of God has reached perfection. Do you want to experience God's love in such a way that his love is described as Notice what's not described as perfect is you and a me. (laughs) He doesn't say whoever obeys his word is perfect. (laughs) He does say whoever obeys his word in that person, truly the love of God has reached perfection. So what's happening? John Oswalt will be with us in October One of the early times I heard him preach, he used this example to illustrate this point. He said, imagine a glass full of dirt. and Imagine that glass full of dirt is your heart. And imagine what would happen if you take that glass full of dirt and put it under Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls is the love of God how long is that glass going to be filled with dirt? (laughs) That water, the love of God, the perfect love of God is going to flood it and fill it. And after a moment of being flooded and filled with the perfect love of God, what happens to that dirt? It gets cleansed. It gets lifted. It gets pushed over the rim. And very shortly, very soon, there's nothing left but pure, clean water. This is why the Apostle Paul can talk about hope and love being poured into our hearts. Jesus, your atoning sacrifice, who loved you and bled for you, who was tortured to death because he loves you more than his life, wants to flood your heart with his love. And his love is perfect In every way. There is no blemish. There is no darkness. His love. Not yours. His. Is perfect. And he wants to turn on the faucet of his perfect love. In your heart. And in your life. And if he does that. And if it sustains. It will push all the dirt. And all the grime. And all the junk. Out. And as you walk with him. And as you grow. From childhood to adolescence to adulthood, more dirt becomes visible than there was before. The glass is dirtier than I realized 10 years ago. But the process of transformation continues if, in that moment, when I learn that the glass is dirtier than I realized, his perfect love just keeps washing. Extra rinse. Jesus, here's a, part of, here's a part of my life. Your spirit has made known. Now you've 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 brought your light has illumined my darkness. And I don't want my fellowship with you to be disrupted. I don't want my joy to be incomplete. So won't you bring your perfect love to that dirty place and cleanse it. That's why. The fact that we have sinned is not an excuse to sin. Yeah, we're not perfect. We have a record. We all have a spiritual rap sheet. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is unquestionable. It is inarguable. It is empirically demonstrable. That's real. But the fact that we've sinned in the past does not mean Jesus is incapable of transforming us in the future. And for the one who is in Christ, the one who is in fellowship with Jesus and with his Father, is never in a place where they must sin. We may choose to. And if we do, thanks be to God, we have an advocate with the Father, the Scripture says. But it is a choice, not a requirement the one who is in fellowship with Jesus, continued sin is a willing choice, not a necessity. And that's why John says, hey, I'm writing so that you can just stop that. And as things come to your attention, you can say yes to Jesus. I remember... As an adolescence, hearing the Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven mantra, and thinking, you know, there's got to be more to it than this. Do we really, really, do we really need 66 books to communicate something that will fit on a keychain? <laughs> There's got to be more to it. There has to be more. Is Jesus really just show up and die and bleed and suffer so that I can continually for the rest of my life just struggle along under the weight of conviction and burden and sin and darkness? Did He really come into the world as the true light so that I can live in darkness? There's got to be more to it than that. And through the years, I have heard countless others testify to the same thing. There's got to be more. And somewhere along the way in college, some very wise pastors said, if you want more, if you want to know what the more is, here's the path you need to take. Here are the books you need to read. They will open the scriptures to you in ways that have not been opened before. Here are the texts. Here's what they mean. Here's how good Jesus is. Here's what he wants to do. And brothers and sisters, what a joy it is to be able to testify and say, there is more. Jesus wants to do more than forgive your sins and leave you a slave to them. He wants to cleanse you and me from all unrighteousness. And he will be about that work